0: The daily lectionary comments for September the 2nd. We're going to look at 1 Kings chapter 18, beginning in verse 20, the contest between uh, uh, Elijah and the prophets of Baal, and Ephesians chapter 2, where we get two examples of Paul describing what we were, what we are, and what God did to make all the difference. Many uh, Christians and most unbelievers when they think of the Bible and when they think of religion, they think of moral obligation. And when they think of moral obligation, they're they're primarily thinking uh, about our obligation to be good people to one another. What God is commanding us to do is to be good people. And he gets mad when we lie and cheat and steal and and, and hang around people who do such things. And when that's when that's what your view of the scripture is, the primary thing that God is seeking from us is that we would be nice to one another. Oftentimes become very confused and, and put off by the actual scriptures, especially the Old Testament, where it's clear that the things that get God really, really riled are not quite that. We see people all over in the Old Testament doing things that are not good and are not nice. And God either overlooks them or doesn't seem to be nearly that upset, at least not compared to the things that really get his goat. And here we're talking about idolatry. Idolatry is something, well, it says, I, the Lord, your God, am a jealous God. And, and things, things like idolatry, I mean, if a king is just not a nice king, that's not good. But things really go south when a king turns to idolatry. And idols in the land are the thing that provokes the Lord to anger an order of magnitude above just the ordinary misbehaviors of people. Idolatry is a huge and important theme in the scripture. Fleeing from idolatry, knowing what idolatry is, and knowing what God is actually commanding and demanding from us is vitally important. The scripture has two, well, it has others, but there there are two huge sort of critiques, if we might want to put it that way, critiques of idolatry, particularly uh, in in the Old Testament. The first uh, is that idolatry represents faithlessness. It's a person being faithless to the God who had so loved them. It's often likened to adultery. It's like uh, a spouse that cheats uh, on an otherwise faithful spouse, um, it's it, it's an act of betrayal. It provokes God. That's why God is a jealous God, and that's why oftentimes the Scripture will refer to people going after uh, um, going after idols. It'll call, talk about them whoring after idols and things like that. I mean, it's 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 murderously angry language. Because to go after an idol is to, is to do something absolutely faithless to a God who has loved you, created you, and redeemed you. So that's one critique. Another critique is that idolatry represents foolishness of the highest order. I want to read to you from Psalm 115. Beginning at verse 3, it says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths, but do not speak. Eyes, but do not see. They have ears, but do not hear. Noses, but do not smell. They have hands, but do not feel. Feet, but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. All right, that is a very common critique of idols, they're nothing, and to follow an idol and to worship an idol is utter foolishness because they are nothing. So, look at our, our um, reading today this contest between uh, the, the prophet of the living God, uh, Elijah, and the 450 prophets of Baal. We begin here with, with Elijah saying, how long will you go on limping between two opinions? If you want to worship God and serve him, then do so. If you want to go after Baal, do so. Sounds very reminiscent to, to uh, actually Joshua, who, who looked at the people and said, uh, you know, choose this day, uh, whether you will follow the gods of the, uh, of the Canaanites, the Ammonites, and so on. Choose which gods you will serve. As for me and my house, he says, we will serve the Lord. But there's more pathos later on. When, as we see the contest develop and the prophets of Baal are trying to, uh, uh, you know, to to do what they can in order to get Baal to act. They're dancing. They are uh, 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 performing various rituals. Uh, they do this all morning long, I mean, even to the point of cutting themselves, and it talks about their blood gushing and flowing. You can't say that the prophets of Baal are lacking in devotion or zeal for Baal. They clearly are not. They're Meanwhile, here's Elijah leaning off to the side, you know, observing all of this, uh, and from time to time making snarky remarks uh, and telling him, maybe, maybe you need to yell a little bit louder. Perhaps Baal is off on vacation, or maybe he's relieving himself, and you need you need to wake him up or something. You know. So here's Elijah making fun of the prophets of Baal. But very sadly, is this uh, uh, line in verse 29? But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Now, that is really getting at the key to what's going on here in this text. Baal is nothing. And these people, for all their devotion, are devoted to nothing. And Baal is not going to act because there is no Baal to act. And these people are fools. And all of this is foolishness. And it's also sad because these are very devoted people. And yet... Their God does not hear, does not answer, does not pay attention. Well, okay, more on this tomorrow. As I said yesterday, regarding Ephesians, the book of Ephesians, it's such a dense book, and there's so much in here. And uh, Ephesians chapter 2 is no exception. That's what we're going to look at here. But what I want you to look at is an elegant sort of design to what Paul is doing here, sort of the rhetorical structure of this. It's actually two different things that he's talking about. The first, he's talking about individual Christians. And he's going to comment on our original state and what God did and and what we are now. He's talking about individual Christians that way. And in the second part of our reading, he's going to talk about a particular kind of Christian, and that is a Gentile Christian. So he's talking about Gentiles... Generally, and he's going to talk about them also as to where they were and what God did and where they are now. So let's let's take a look. Verse 3, talking about individual Christians, and it says, You were dead. You were dead in trespasses and sins. That's where you were when God found you. Verse 4: But God, being rich in mercy, verse 5 made us alive together with Christ. We were dead in the trespasses and sins in which we once walked, but now God has made us alive with Christ. Then he talks about by grace, God has done this. In other words, God did this for us. When it says by grace, it means that God did this for us because of the way God is, not because of the way we are. God wasn't responding to some inner worth in us that caused us to make us alive. He made us alive because that's the way God is. There was nothing in us that caused God to say, well, I'm going to have to rescue these people. We were dead in trespasses and sins. But God, by grace, made us alive with Christ. And look at verse 10. We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. We were dead in sins and trespasses, but God has made us alive because that's what kind of a God we have. And what are we now, having been made alive in Christ and raised with him by the power of the Holy Spirit? We are now God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay? That's why he's left us here. He didn't make us alive just so that we could go to heaven. He'll get us to heaven sooner or later. But for now, he's made us alive and left us here so that we may do good works. And give witness to who it is that made us alive. All right, so that's the first part. We were, but God, we are. And now the second half talks about the relationship between Gentiles and Jews. And now how they've come together in the church. That the Gentile Christians and Jewish Christians are now in one church. And he begins by talking to the Gentile Christians. He says... Remember, this is verse 11, uh, 11, yes. Remember at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh, verse 12, you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now we can't say that about Israel. Israel always had this hope, and they were waiting for their Christ. And in a way, they already believed in him before he came, They were under the Christ even before the Christ came. But the Gentiles were not so. They did not have the law of Moses or the word of God at all. They had nothing. They were alienated and separated from Christ. Verse 14. Excuse me. Verse 13. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off, have been brought near by the, by the blood of Christ. Talks then about how God, through the cross, has reconciled Gentiles and Jews and brought them into one holy Christian church. That's what God did through the cross. In verse 19, he says, you are, you Gentiles, no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Used to be alienated from him, You knew nothing about God and his word. You were not a part of his commonwealth. You were not a part of Israel at all. But now you are as much a part of God's plan and God's people and God's commonwealth as the Jews, as anybody. For we are all under one Christ and there is one church and Jew and Gentile are one people here. That's not what we were. But God changed all of that through his cross and that's what we are.